You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. Now, I remember last year, for those who are watching it, and forgive me, I'm into this Field of Dreams thing. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, one of my favorite sports movies of all time. You know, and I think it's a very cool thing that Major League Baseball does. Disappointed to hear they won't be playing it next year. Hopefully it does come back. But I remember last year it opened with Kevin Costner coming out of the corn, and he was, like, walking around the field all dramatically so. He walked out to the mound. He asked the crowd, is this heaven? And they yelled back, it's Iowa. And it was a whole cool theatrical thing. You know, and I'm at the point in my life now where I've got a son who's now eight. Last year he was seven, and he's a baseball player now, and he's all into this too. So we were watching it together, but he doesn't really, you know, nor should he understand the way the world works. So as they were uh, showing some of the pregame stuff tonight, he said to me, and he doesn't know who Kevin Costner is, he calls him Ray Kinsella, uh, but he says to me, hey, Dad, do you think Ray Kinsella is going to be there? And I kind of laughed because I'm like, it's Kevin Costner. It's one of the uh, <laughs> biggest celebrities uh, that we have. And I'm like, I-, I think that was a one-shot deal for Kevin Costner. I don't know that he's going to be coming back to Dyersville, Iowa, to do that every single year. I think that was just for the first one, and then they got to figure something else out. So I heard in the update with Kevin Winter there what they did, and I just pulled it up on video. It's very cool because the um, – Obviously, the big buildup to the Field of Dreams movie is the catch at the end. And there's so many famous scenes and there's so many famous lines and and favorite parts of the movie. But the one that seems to jog the most emotions is when Kevin Costner asks his father, Dad, can we have a catch? So it starts tonight. And who comes out of the cornstalks? I just watched it was Ken Griffey Jr. And then a couple of cornstalks away, Ken Griffey Sr. walks out and they walk out together. And it's also cool because... Senior was a Cincinnati Red, part of the Big Red Machine. He's wearing a Cincinnati Reds T-shirt, and they walk out to center field, and Junior turns to Senior and says, Dad, can we have a catch? And I think that's very cool. I mean, that's you're wondering how can you not necessarily top Kevin Costner from last year, but how can you make the beginning of this as impactful year after year after year? That was a pretty good follow-up, having the Griffies. I would imagine the most prominent father-son to ever play baseball. I mean, they hit back-to-back home runs in a game for the Seattle Mariners at one point, which is unbelievable. So very cool to have that be the start of the Field of Dreams game tonight. Uh, And again, the fact that Senior was part of the Big Red Machine and the Reds are in the game tonight adds a little something to it. Yankees were in that game last year. It was a wild game. Uh, It actually started after the game. The Yankees went on a 13-game winning streak, their longest winning streak of the season. They lost the Field of Dreams game on the walk-off home run by Tim Anderson, and then they ripped off 13 games in a row, 13 wins in a row. They didn't lose again for like two weeks. And then they almost instantly gave most of that winning streak back. Last year was a very frustrating season for the Yankees and their fans. You're starting to see some similarities in how the Yankees are playing now to how they played basically all of last year. The inability to string together a lot of offense. You have guys up and down that lineup that are struggling. You know, Aaron Judge has masked a lot of holes. He has masked a lot of deficiencies in that lineup all season long. And so has the starting pitching and so has the relief pitching. Starting pitching is not as good as it was earlier in the season. The relievers are not as good as they were earlier in the season. Injuries are a big part of that. Judge did have some help earlier in the season in the form of Giancarlo Stanton, but he's been on the injured list since the All-Star break. Luis Severino is out right now. Matt Carpenter 
is out right now. So the injuries do play a factor for the Yankees, and you don't want to overlook that. You you don't want to use it as a crutch or use it as an excuse, but it's not like the same group of 26 players who were playing at a 117-win pace through the first two and a half months of the season all of a sudden forgot how to win. It's not the same 26 players. You know, Stanton was a huge part of that. Severino was a huge part of that. Carpenter was a huge part of that. Michael King was a huge part of that, and he's now gone for the season. And you've already lost Chad Green for the season. You're paying Zach Britton. He's expected to come back, and pretty soon, but he hasn't pitched for you at all this season. Jonathan Lewisaga was injured early. He was ineffective early. Then he was injured, and now he's back, but he hasn't gotten on track. Aroldis Chapman was ineffective early. He was injured. He came back. He was ineffective. He's starting to become more and more of a prominent force in that bullpen, but you haven't gotten nearly what you were expecting out of him yet. So that's a lot of spots on this roster where there has been underperformance, either because of injury or straight-up underperformance. Now, the good news is, obviously, there's still 30 games above 500. They still have a very healthy lead in the American League East because no one has really made a run at them. Toronto, who's in second place, is still 10 games behind, um, nine games behind in the loss column. They've lost their last two. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10 games. So there was an opportunity for the Blue Jays to kind of make this interesting here, and there still will be that opportunity if the Yankees slide continues. But for now, the lead for first place in the American League East, uh, American League East is a somewhat comfortable 10 games. Aaron Boone was a guest on the Michael K. Show earlier today and was asked about the team's recent struggles. Um, well, obviously, it's been a bad week for us results-wise and been a tough few weeks here just getting back in that really good groove that we know we're going to get to. So, you know, I think all things considered, I think we're in the right frame of mind and we just got to start putting it together on a nightly basis and, and get back to shaking hands after the games. Yeah, it hasn't happened in a while. They're a sub-500 team since the All-Star break, as I mentioned, 1-7 in seven over their last eight games. Now, the way that they have lost have come in different forms. For example, two games ago in Seattle, they lose one nothing in 13 innings. Now you may ask, how can you play 13 innings where they allow you a ghost runner in the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th? They allow a runner to start at second base four times in addition to playing a full nine-inning game. How can you not score one run that entire game? Well, a number of reasons. They couldn't come up with the big hit. But in extra innings, the base running was atrocious as several times they ran themselves out of a scoring opportunity. And when you start, that has not been a consistent problem for this team this season. In fact, I think one of the best things that Cashman did before the season was shore up the fundamentals. For example, defense, it's been very good this year. Base running. That was an area in which the Yankees were lacking in recent years. But for whatever the reason, on Tuesday night, late into the night, early into the morning in Seattle, they ran themselves out of several rallies in extra innings. And Boone was asked to speak about those base running blunders. Head on, attack each situation. One of the hard things is, you know, we made a real commitment to base running in the offseason and then in the spring training and all season. And it's been a strength of this team throughout the season. So just because we've made a couple of 
mistakes. Some are fundamental mistakes. Some are mistakes of aggression. Unfortunately, sometimes that's part of it when you're going to play an up-tempo, aggressive style of baseball. So we've gotten a lot of fruits of our base running throughout this year that's helped result in a lot of wins for us. And now we've made a couple of mistakes. And, you know, especially as we've gone through these last few weeks where we haven't been racking up wins, had a couple of base running blunders that kind of get highlighted. So kind of the challenge is to lean into it, talk about those situations, what happened here, what went wrong, why, but also try not to lose our aggressiveness and the edge that we've created with base running. So that's kind of a delicate balance to strike. I don't want our guys being fearful out there because I think we're second in the league in stolen bases, and we're probably certainly in the bottom part of the league when it comes to team speed. So we've really leveraged base running in a big-time way this year, and I don't want a couple of blunders, especially in a week where we haven't played well or haven't won games, to be all of a sudden now pull the reins back and shut it down it it just gets highlighted when it happens during a stretch where the team is struggling in multiple other areas and that is what tends to happen when in the beginning of the season there were there were several games in which the other team had to make a costly error or a timely strikeout for the Yankees in order for the Yankees to win those games. The Yankees lived a charmed life in the first half of the season. They played exquisite baseball, but living a charmed life often comes with doing the fundamental things right. And that goes back to the moves, which is why when I get calls saying that Cashman doesn't know what he's doing across the board, I push back on that. Is every move that Cashman has made Has that worked out? Absolutely not. In fact, right now, his track record around the trade deadline is looking very spotty. Time will tell how those moves turn out. But before the season started, rather than take the big free agent swing at a shortstop like Carlos Correa or uh, uh, Corey Seager or, you know, one of the big names, uh, Trevor Story, that were out there, what Cashman did was he shored up the defense, and he got rid of Gary Sanchez, and he replaced him with the Higashioka-Jose uh, Trevino combination. He moved Glaber Torres off of shortstop, and he replaced him uh, with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. He put Josh Donaldson at third base. And say what you want about Donaldson. you don't. He's not your favorite guy because he's not mine. He hasn't hit that well because he hasn't. He's an excellent defensive third baseman. Now the most uh, recent move in that area is shoring up center field and Harrison Bader, a gold glove center fielder who is expected back in September, who they got in the trade for Jordan Montgomery. And he's expected to fill that hole. So usually when teams are built on defense and base running and the fundamentals, the charmed life works in their favor. That That's just how it goes. If you can shore up the fundamentals, then less things are apt to go wrong, which is why lately the Yankees have not been playing like that. Okay, When you see base running mistakes like you did on Tuesday that literally cost you a game in very, very frustrating fashion, yes, and I agree with Boone in the extent that their philosophy all year long has worked in being more aggressive, and far more often than not, that aggressiveness has led to the Yankees being plus 204 in run differential um, against their opponents this year. But when you're in the middle of a stretch where you lose seven out of eight games, and this happens multiple times in extra innings in the same game, it's magnified. Now, other areas of the team, 
and this is more from Aaron Boone this afternoon on the Michael K show here on 98.7 ESPN New York. This is something that I've been on for a couple of weeks now, really since the beginning of July when he came back from the injured list, made his return in Pittsburgh in low leverage spots. And I'm talking about a Roldis Chapman. And Chapman has been good since he came back from injury more than a month now. Now, he hasn't pitched for the most part, in those high-leverage spots. He hasn't pitched the ninth inning of games like he has been accustomed to doing his entire career. But with every scoreless inning that he puts up, he gets put in a more high-leverage situation. So Boone was asked if Chapman has earned even more high-leverage situations. Oh, yeah, he's already in higher-leverage situations. I don't know if I'm going to throw him back in the closer spot necessarily, but we feel great about where he's at. The last seven has been as good as he's thrown the ball since the first part of last year, and he's got some confidence back with his fastball. He's been real consistent with it. He's throwing strikes with it. Then it allows him to set up his secondary, so the split finger to to right-handed hitters, the slider to left, he's not so predictable with that because he's being really aggressive with his fastball, and he's in a good place delivery-wise, and it's been exciting to see him kind of really bounce back like this really over the last month. So we're going to continue to put him in big situations and parts of the lineup that we feel like he matches up really well against, but we're really excited about where he's at and how he's throwing the ball right now. All right, so Aroldis Chapman earning more and more opportunities. Now this weekend, the Yankees off tonight, Mets are off today as well. This weekend, a three-game series in Fenway Park. The Red Sox are below 500 right now. They're in last place in the American League East. Still a team that gives the Yankees trouble, and they have this season. Tomorrow night, Domingo Herman against Nady Valdi. On Saturday, um, Frankie Montaz against Cutter Crawford. And on Sunday, Jamison Tyone against Michael Waka. Those are your pitching matchups for the weekend. Now, Montaz is a guy who's supposed to settle in right behind Garrett Cole as your number two starter. His first start as a Yankee was bad in St. Louis on Sunday. The Yankees gave him a 4-1 to lead in the second inning, and then he gave up five runs in the bottom of the second, including a huge home run to Nolan Arenado. So in his Yankees debut, uh, Frankie Montas lasted only three innings, allowed six earned runs. He walked three. He gave up five hits, and it was uh, an inauspicious debut, to say the least. So uh, Boone on the Michael K. Show today was asked about his new starter. I think he's going to be great for us. I really do. I love his demeanor, love his kind of way. He's really excited to be here. And I think this is where he wanted to be. I think he's equipped to handle it. You know, I think that first start was just unique in that he you know, didn't have a big pitch count. Million degrees in St. Louis on an afternoon game where he flew in the night before, where obviously dealing with a family situation with a death in the family. So, And obviously with the trade deadline moving and getting traded. He's been great, though. I don't think he's really phased by... Uh, struggling through that first outing and looking forward to him getting back on the mound Saturday night here in Boston. He should be close to, you know, a full complement of pitches. You know, we'll probably have him more up in that 85, 90, 95 pitch range, which will be nice. And I think he's going to be a huge addition for us. It was a tough spot for Montas to make his Yankees debut, especially considering he was playing against a Cardinals team that is playing really well right now. But you go from that to your second start Saturday night, in Fenway, national TV against the Red Sox. But look, the Yankees got Montas to pitch in big pressure games and have the spotlight on him. So here you go. Start number two. Let's see what you got. 
Let's see what the callers think. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Vincent in Astoria. Vincent, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you for taking my call. I'm enjoying your show. I think Thank you. the issue uh, – I'm sorry. Yeah, the issue with the Yankees, uh, they're not built to win a short series because – they're, you know, they're going to take advantage, uh, you know, for a 162-game season, they'll take advantage of the lesser teams. Uh, there was a stat where I believe against the top 10 pitching staffs uh, that they faced, their batting average was 189. Now, obviously, no one's going to hit great, right? No one's going to hit 300 against the top 10. Uh, 189 is not going to get the job done. And, you know, in a short series, you're going to see the Verlanders three times if it's a seven-game set. And I, they have too many holes in their in their lineup. I, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, uh, Hicks should not be on the field. Uh, you know, K- uh, Kiner, Kalefa, I'm sorry. They were stats that showed um, his OPS numbers and all these advanced metrics that he was the equivalent of a Joey Gallo. Yes, he bats you know, 270 or whatever, but he has no RBIs, he, you know, has no power whatsoever. He's another hole in the lineup. And, you know, you know, uh, Josh Donaldson, okay, he gets hot here and there, but overall he's another hole in the lineup. And Glaber is like the girl with the curls, right? When he's good, you know, he's a good hitter, but when he's bad and, you know, the other night he was in a high leverage situation, just got to make contact. You can see swinging out of his shoes, trying to hit a grand slam enough, just make contact, poke the ball to right field, do what you need to do to get the run across. So to me, I don't trust uh, Glaber. Now, I don't understand why in in high leverage situation or any situation, why does Aaron Judge get to see a hittable pitch? I can't get, and I don't think he will. See, they're going to pitch around him, and you know he's going to uh, be limited. I think. I mean, if you throw him strikes, uh, you know, you're crazy because that guy is uh, MVP type of season. Uh, and then, you know, the depth of their starting rotation, uh, there's question mark. Even Cole, okay, give him the benefit of the doubt. Even if he pitches well, he's shown that he's not – he doesn't have the makeup like a Scherzer does uh, or Verlander does. You know, oh, the, the opening day got delayed by uh, whatever, four minutes. There was unforeseen uh, circumstances that have impacted him. You know, just take the take the blame. Say, you know, I had a crappy first inning. I got lit up. And, you know, beat that. stop blaming everyone else. He doesn't have that demeanor. You know, his body language on the mound. If, God forbid, anything goes wrong, if someone makes an error or whatever, you know, lame, you know, he, he's, he could implode. You can't trust him. And, you know, and then you go down the rest of the rotation. I, I, they're all question marks. And I just don't, you know, I don't see how they could win. You know, they could win 120 games this season. And they'll probably go on a roll again because, quite honestly, the AL East, um, it, you know, the, the Red Sox think, you know, I think Tampa has run their course. You know, they're decent. Um, uh, you know, B- Baltimore has improved dramatically, but still, they're not they're not at that level. So overall, that that whole they'll easily win the division. They'll get a bye, but you know, and they'll beat the Twins if they face them again because they just own them. But when when you know the Yankees are not here to you know have a nice regular season and get to the ALCS, they're there to win the World Series. And if they don't win the World Series, or at least get to get the World there. Series, they, they have so to smart. get they they have to get to yes. the World Series, Vincent. And thanks right. for the call. I agree with most of what you said. That was a good call, and you're you're spot on on a lot of those points. The one area where I disagree, when you say that Judge won't see a pitch in the playoffs, I hear what you're saying, but that's when you have to realize that Stanton's going to be there behind him. And that's when you have to – look, Yankee fans are still sour on Stanton for his first two seasons. 2018, he actually had a good regular season. He came up small in the ALDS against the Red Sox. Had the biggest at-bat of that series. Had a chance to 
win the game for the Yankees in Game 4 and extend their series, and he struck out with a runner on third and one out. And then the next year he played nine regular season games, came back for the playoffs, teased everyone with a couple of home runs, and then got hurt again and was done in the ALCS. Yankee fans are still sour about that. Stanton is a very good player. He was an all-star this year, and rightfully so. Ever since the 2020 playoffs began, where he was unconscious, if you remember, he's been a highly productive player for the Yankees, and he's not there right now. So when you put Stanton in the lineup behind Aaron Judge, that changes everything. But I agree with a lot of what that caller said. And I really liked the Glaber Torres comparison, calling him the girl with the curl. We're going to take a break. We'll continue with the phone calls at 1-800-919-3776. I'll give you some Glaber Torres numbers that are, well, they're downright alarming. And this is part of the problem right now that the Yankees are facing, trying to plug all of these holes in their lineup. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. Giants and the Patriots in the preseason opener at uh, Foxborough. And again, the Giants came out and they played their starters. Daniel Jones and the starters on offense played the first two series. Uh, a field goal is what they were able to muster for those two drives. Jones's numbers, this is typical Daniel Jones numbers. Six out of ten for 69 yards. He was sacked once and he had one carry for six yards running for a first down on third and four. Tyrod Taylor, who I've always liked, and Taylor's had a, he's really had a lot of bad luck in his career. He's a solid quarterback. Now, he's not what you want as your quarterback of the future, but it's looking more and more by the day that Daniel Jones isn't what you want as your quarterback of the future. Taylor, now granted, playing with the second stringers and against the backups to the backups of the New England Patriots, Tyrod Taylor, 12 out of 14 for 118 yards and a touchdown in the first half as the Giants now lead the Patriots 10-7 to at the two-minute warning of their preseason opener in Foxborough. Jets preseason openers tomorrow in Philadelphia. Uh, 7 o'clock is when that game starts. You could hear it here on 98.7 ESPN New York. So, look, if you remember the last six weeks of the Giants season last year and in the last quarter century – that was probably the most unwatchable stretch of Giants football during the last 25 years. The only thing that could challenge it was the last month of the 2003 season when Kerry Collins got hurt and he was at the end of his run as the Giants quarterback. And they essentially, uh, that was Jim Fossil's last year. That was a year of great seismic change as well. The Giants were 4-12 and that year in 2003. Collins was gone. Uh, the late Jim Fossil was gone as head coach. They brought in Tom Coughlin. They had the fourth pick in the draft, and that's when they made the trade with San Diego for Eli Manning, trading Phillip Rivers, and you know the rest is history. Those last few games in 2003 were tough to watch. The last six weeks last year after Jones hurt his neck and um, – you're watching Mike Glennon, and God, what was, oh my God, I can't believe I'm forgetting the guy's name. He's an NFL quarterback for the Giants last year. What was the third-string quarterback's name? He was from Georgia, and he actually made a start for the Giants, and uh, I, I, I'm blanking on it right now. I apologize. It was 
it was tough football to watch last year for those last six weeks. So that's really the only thing you can hang your hat on if you're Daniel Jones. The uh, say that again, Jacob Fromm. Right, exactly. Um, Jake Fromm, Jake Fromm State Farm. Yes, there you go from Georgia. Thank you, Jake Fromm. That was rough. the The Mike Glennon Jake Fromm era was rough uh, for the Giants last year. At least you know. If something happens to Jones, Tyrod Taylor is not Mike Glennon and he's not Jake Fromm. I'm starting to think that Tyrod Taylor is better than Daniel Jones. And I'm serious. I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to get calls and start a quarterback controversy here in New York. Tyrod Taylor, you know, whether he was with Buffalo, um, he was the starting quarterback in Cleveland, he was the starting quarterback in San Diego. He's always unfortunately gotten his opportunity on a team. He's always been the caretaker before the high draft pick comes in and takes over. It happened to him in Cleveland when they picked Baker Mayfield, and he was the starting quarterback at the beginning of the season. And that was just such a god-awful team. That was a team that had not won a game in a year and a half. They hadn't won a game in a year and a half, and that's the team that Tyrod Taylor's expected to lead. And then if you remember, he got hurt in the first half of a Thursday night game against the Jets – Mayfield comes in, and the Jets were just as bad, worse as it turned out. Mayfield led Cleveland to its first win in like a year and a half. The entire city fell head over heels in love with him, and Taylor never saw the field again. Then he goes to San Diego as they draft Justin Herbert high in the draft, and Taylor starts the season as their starting quarterback, and right before the game is about to start, the team doctor is giving him a shot and he punctures his lung or his kidney, and he can't play. And then Justin Herbert comes out, last second, has to be an emergency starter, and Justin Herbert has been terrific ever since. That was, you know, did it work out for the Chargers? Yeah, it probably did. But really, really bad luck for Tyrod Taylor. He's played well during his career. Now, if your goal for the Giants this year, because you can't, if Jones isn't the guy You can't throw the entire season away, sinking or swimming with Jones. And they won't. All right, this is why Tyrod Taylor is actually an important figure in New York. The giant coaching staff needs to evaluate everything. They need to evaluate this offensive line. They need to evaluate Saquon Barkley to see if they can move forward with him. They need to evaluate Kadarius Toney. They need to evaluate Wandale Robinson. They need to evaluate their young tight ends. Bellinger... Seals Jones, whoever's going to start at that position. Slayton's still a young guy. You want to see what you have in Kenny Galladay. You want to see if Sterling Shepard is healthy. If you don't have a quarterback who's capable of running an offense consistently, then you can't fairly evaluate any of those players. So if for nothing else, if the Giants decide in the middle of the season that Jones just isn't the answer, and not only is he not the answer, But they're not getting an accurate look at these other guys. You cannot throw away the entire season with Daniel Jones. If the decision is made by midseason that Jones ain't the guy, which could happen. And as I watch this, Tyrod Taylor throws deep into double coverage and it falls incomplete. Then there is a scenario where Taylor is on the field, not as the Giants quarterback of the future, once again, as a stopgap quarterback, which for better or worse seems to be Tyrod Taylor's lot in life. But you know what? There are much, much worse ways to make a living in this country. I'll say that. But that seems to be his lot in life as the stopgap, as the 
the uh, placeholder. But if he can help you get a more accurate read on these young receivers to see what this offensive line is capable of offering in terms of protection, to see if Saquon Barkley can get close to the guy he was even his second season in the NFL, not even his first season, then there's a path for Tyrod Taylor to be the Giants quarterback by the end of the year. Because let's be honest, if they decide in the middle of the season that Jones isn't going to be the guy going forward and they're going to pick a quarterback in the draft next year or pursue one in free agency, well, then you might as well play the other guy. Then it doesn't matter who you're playing because neither one of them are probably going to be here next year. In fact, there's a better chance if Jones isn't the guy that Taylor would be here next year because Taylor is more likely to be your backup quarterback. So that's something to keep an eye on. And again, Taylor's numbers tonight, he's 13 out of 17 for 129 yards and a touchdown as the Giants trailed, uh, lead the Patriots by a score of 10 to 7. Before the break, I promised a, a note on Glaber Torres. Torres, if you remember, got hot right before the All-Star break. Now, Torres' season numbers this year, 252, 16 home runs, 47 runs batted in. Compared to 2020 and compared to 2021, a market improvement. But in the month of August, and he's played nine games in the month of August, Torres is batting 171. He has one RBI in those nine games. And in August, in nine games, he has a 394 OPS. Now, OPS is a very important stat, but not everybody understands it quite yet. So I always like to give a little disclaimer. A 750 OPS is average. An 850 OPS, and you're an all-star. Anything above 850, you know, that's Aaron Judge, Mike Trout territory. 750 is an average major league OPS. Glaber Torres in the month of August has an OPS of 394. That's about half of average. So you're getting no production from Torres. You're getting no production from Aaron Hicks. I disagree with the caller from last segment about Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. You're getting from Kiner-Falefa what you could have hoped to have gotten. He's not an offensive force. But what he does, he puts the bat on the ball. He gets on base. When he gets on base, he can run a little. And most importantly, Kiner-Falefa has played an excellent shortstop. You know, I applaud Cashman for shoring up the defense with Kiner-Falefa, Jose Trevino, and even Josh Donaldson. But with Josh Donaldson, you have to look at the other side of this thing. There's another hole in the lineup. He hasn't been good. So Donaldson, Hicks, and Glaber Torres, not to mention that the shortstop isn't supposed to give you anything, and the catcher isn't supposed to give you anything. That's five spots in the lineup. Now, the Yankees do have Miguel Andujar back. And... Earlier in the season when Gallo was struggling and Duhar was up and Hicks was struggling, I said, just put this guy in left field, give him the job, and let him stay there for the rest of the season. Because every time Duhar is in the lineup, he seems to come up with a hit. And he's not the greatest fielder. He's not a great all-around player. But he hits. He hits. He can hit for power. He can hit it into the gaps. He can hit doubles. He can hit home runs. He's getting the opportunity to play now with um, Carpenter on the injured list. Here's Boone on the Michael K. show earlier today on Miguel Andujar's current role. 
I mean, he's a great guy and a really good teammate at work. So, you know, there'll be some opportunities here and there, certainly in the immediate against some left-handed pitching or, you know, a bat off the bench on a given night. He's really worked hard at, at making himself a capable outfielder. So he's really played a really good left field for the bulk of this season, mostly in AAA. But even with us, we're seeing the athleticism out there. He more than holds his own out there. So that's been good to see. And I know it's been a difficult season for him and just being a little bit up and down and spending most of the year in AAA, but he's handled his business. He's gone down to AAA, and even though not being happy about that, obviously, he's gone down there and gotten after it and put together a good season down there. Now you talk about OPS, and again, 750s average, 850s an all-star. Aaron Judge's OPS this year is 1078, <laughs> just to give you some context. Matt Carpenter's OPS this year is 1138. Now, Carpenter's done it in a half a season. You know, Judge has played 108 games, 408 at-bats. Carpenter's played 47 games and 128 at-bats. But in those 128 at-bats, his OPS is 1138. Obviously, he's out now with the fracture in his foot that he suffered in the Seattle game the other night. So Boone was asked if Carpenter returning this year is realistic. I think it's realistic. I mean, whether it happens or not, I think we'll have a better idea in about three to four weeks when they re-X-ray it, and that'll be the telling thing. Like, how's the bone healing? And that'll give us the indication of what a real timeline's going to look like. You know, I know they're really encouraged by it not being something that's going to need surgery. Ligaments and all those things are good. It seems to be a pretty clean break, so it seems to be pretty straightforward. So we're hopeful that that is the case, but we'll have a better idea of that in the next few weeks. Aaron Boone this afternoon on the Michael K show talking about Matt Carpenter. Hey, you can stream live sports and original content with ESPN plus today. You get access to the award-winning 30 for 30 library unrivaled UFC access, including exclusive pay-per-views live coverage of 35 PGA tour events each year. Get the ESPN plus and Disney plus bundle today and watch the captain, the seven part series on the life and career of, of Derek Jeter, you can watch other originals like Eli's Places. Stream anytime, anywhere. Go to ESPNNewYorkBundle.com to learn more. The seventh and final episode of The Captain is on right after this show, 10 o'clock tonight. You can catch that on ESPN. Quick break. Uh, when we come back, more of your calls and update from Foxborough as the preseason is underway for the Giants against the New England Patriots here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. Mentioned 15 and 2 for the Mets in their last 17 games. Now they lost their first two games out of the break to the San Diego Padres. So technically since the second half of the season began, the Mets are 15 and 4. But they come out of the break with three games against San Diego and then they swept the Yankees in that mini two-game subway series at City Field. Three games at Miami. Marlins are a decent team that always seems to give the Mets trouble. Then you take two out of three in Washington, a terrible team. The four out of five at home against Atlanta. And then you took care of business in the three-game series against Cincinnati. So series against the Yankees, a five-game series against the Braves, a three-game series in Miami, and a three-game series against the Padres. Not an easy stretch. And again, it doesn't get easier. This weekend, you've got three against the Phillies who have played extremely well. Philadelphia is 40-19 and over their last 59 games. That's since they fired Joe Girardi. That does not look good on Joe Girardi's resume. That they immediately, the day they fired him, 
went on a 40-19 and 19 run. But this weekend, you've got Scherzer, DeGrom, and Bassett on the mound. Sunday's matchup is Bassett and former Met Zach Wheeler. Saturday is Jacob DeGrom and Aaron Nola, who have been uh, battling for Cy Young candidacy in recent years, two of those going to Jacob DeGrom. And then after the three at home against Philadelphia, you go back to Atlanta for another four games, Carrasco, Walker, Scherzer, DeGrom. So those are your top four pitchers you'll have pitching in that four-game series against Atlanta. And that road trip is a four in Atlanta, it's four in Philadelphia, and then if you want to call it a road trip to finish, it's two games in the Bronx against the Yankees. So those are their next 10 games. Four against, excuse me, those are their next 13 games. Three against the Phillies, four against the Braves, four more against the Phillies, and two against the Yankees. So that is why it is so important to beat up on the Nationals. They took two out of three. To beat up on the Cincinnati Reds. They swept them this week at City Field. Because when you have the opportunity and you have Colorado coming in at the end of the month for another four-game series before the Dodgers come here for three. So there are a lot of upper echelon. First of all, there's a lot of upper echelon teams in the National League, which is why I keep going back to the importance for the Mets to win this division. All right, with the new playoff format and now three wild card teams instead of two, only two of the three division winners. You could be a div- you could win your division and not make it automatically into the NLDS. And if you don't win your division, You've got to play a two out of three series. And I know that the Mets, more than any other team, are set up to win a two out of three series when you have Scherzer and DeGrom. Same reason why I think the Mets, more than any other team, are set up to win a three out of five game series. But still, you don't want to waste Scherzer and DeGrom in an opening round series and have your pitching rotation out of whack before you even get to the NLDS. And secondly, when it's a three game series more weird things can happen, right? The longer the series goes, the more often the better team wins. Outside of the Dodgers, I'm confident saying that the Mets are the better team against any team in the National League, which is why what they have done since the All-Star break, going 15-2 and over their last 17 games, has been so important. Atlanta closed to within a half a game. They had all the momentum. The Mets... At that time, were without not only DeGrom, but without Scherzer, and they were able to somehow hold them off, and now they've pushed the lead back up to seven. And that four-game series next week in Atlanta is going to be huge. It could be everything as far as this division goes. Because think about it. After that, and again, the Mets have their top four pitchers throwing that series in Atlanta next week. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, all night games, Carrasco, Walker, and then you finish with the two big boys, Scherzer and DeGrom on Wednesday and Thursday. After that, let's say you come out of that series seven games up or eight games up. You take three out of four against Atlanta and you're eight games up. That series ends on uh, on August 18th. You know, Mets have 50 games to go right now. After the Atlanta series, they're going to have 43 games left after they play three against Philly this week and then four in Atlanta next week. And then you start doing the math. All right, eight-game lead, 43 games to go. 
Now put 2007 out of your mind, Mets fans. But seriously, then you can really start to do the math and think, wow, we're really close to... And the other thing you have to realize, the Mets are playing their best baseball of the season. This is the best they have been all season, the healthiest, the most whole they have been all season long. So no matter which way you look at what the Mets are doing right now, there is very little to not like with the Mets. All right, they're about to start the second half at Foxborough. Giants and the uh, Patriots will continue to follow that along. We'll also get into some Knicks conversation and, and for those so interested, a Joey Gallo update here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. All right, so we know what the Yankees have done since the trade deadline. They've won one game in their last eight since making their flurry of moves uh, before the August 2nd trade deadline. Yanks back in action tomorrow against the Red Sox three-game weekend series at Fenway Park. Joey Gallo, one of those moves, going to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And you, you just knew you knew it was going to happen. And you're also still waiting for if the Yankees are lucky enough to meet the Dodgers in the playoffs. And, of course, that would be in the fall classic if it were to happen. I've had no fewer than half-dozen Yankee fans call, text, say to me, well, you know that he's going to hit a big home run against the Yankees in the postseason. Well, sure enough, uh, Dodgers going for their 10th straight win last night, had a 5-4 to four lead, and Joey Gallo at the plate. 2-1 to Gallo. Throwing in a fly ball to left center field. Well hit on its way, and it is gone! A home run! Joey Gallo with a pinch hit three-run home run. Well, there you go. He can hit home runs. He's done that for most of his career, just didn't hit enough of them in the Bronx. And after the game on Sportsnet LA, they interviewed on the field. Who else but the newest Dodger? All right, Joey, you went in off the bench, had a three-run homer, your first as a Dodger. How did it feel? Yeah, it felt good. It's pretty excited, especially like coming off the bench. You know, you know, you don't even know if you're going to play or not. So to get in that bat in that situation and to come through and hit a homer, you know, ended up being a pretty big one for us. So uh, it's nice to help the team. Dodger fans are, they're pretty special. But what was it like for you to hear them chanting for you as you ran home? Yeah, it's been a while since I heard people chanting for me. So I'm pretty excited about that. They've been awesome so far, like just cheering me on, saying that they love that I'm here and it makes me feel good and it's such a great team to be a part of a great organization so hopefully we can keep winning Joey Gallo left New York with a uh, sour taste in his mouth for sure it's been a while since he heard people cheer for him I I think we know why you know you you don't tend to deserve people cheering for you and showering you with all of this adulation when you're a 165 hitter you just don't look it didn't work out in New York He's in a good spot in Los Angeles. Um, we'll see where his career goes beyond this, but you knew it was going to happen. And he can run into one every once in a while. And he, and this is, this is the difference, and this is why people who think that the Yankees are just going through a, a rough patch right now and they can compete with the likes of the Dodgers and, dare I say, the Mets for a World Series. On a team like the Dodgers, Gallo is a luxury. He's a bit piece that can come off the bench and maybe knock one over the fence like he just did. On the Yankees, Joey Gallo was essential. Now, it didn't work out, so they shipped him out. Gallo was essential for the Yankees. On the Dodgers, he's a bit piece. Think about that as you think about the Yankees competing with the likes of the Dodgers in October.
Back with more on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.